0: Hello and welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for the week of November 15th, 2017. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I'll be your host. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-podcaster in studio, 538 sports writer Kyle Wagner. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Neil. And on the line from Chicago, back from a week away from the show, we've got 538 sports writer Chris Herring. Hey, Chris.
1: How's it how's
0: it going, man? It's going well. You know, here in New York, uh, we're all about the uh LBJ versus the Knicks feud. Who you who you guys have in that? Uh are you are you taking Innis Cantor's side and and feeling like there's uh there's a new king of New York or uh is is LeBron still the guy? I want to talk about this. <laughs> so, next, come on, Kyle. next question come on, next question, Kyle. next question. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll leave Kyle's uh Knicks feelings aside for right now uh and move on to the show. So on today's show We're going to talk about who else, the red-hot Boston Celtics, will they ever lose a ball game, and how have they been able to maintain this winning streak despite losing Gordon Hayward and a bunch of other obstacles that they faced. Talk about them. We'll also bring you a small sample on conference imbalance, which is looking like much less of a thing than anyone thought would be possible going into, especially this of all seasons. But first... Let's hit the headlines. And the one that stood out to us when we were kind of talking in Slack yesterday was the story that was written by Stan Van Gundy, coach of the Detroit Pistons, on Tuesday. Uh, He wrote a piece for Time Magazine, very long, thoughtful piece, uh, in which he voiced support for athletes protesting the national anthem in the NFL, other leagues, including the WNBA as well. He said in a time where bigotry seems on the rise and commitment to racial equality on the decline, I have an obligation as as a citizen to speak out and to support in any way possible those brave and patriotic athletes who are working to bring change to our country. Now, Van Gundy is just the latest NBA coach to speak out in favor of social justice following the lead of Greg Popovich of the Spurs, Steve Kerr the Warriors, even David Fisdale of the Grizzlies also uh, had comments uh, about it in the lead up to the season and last season. Uh, And so I want to open this up to discussion uh, about the NBA's place in the world of, of protests that are ongoing in the NFL and other sports and also about Van Gundy in particular as a coach who, he's not a Greg Popovich, he's not a Steve Kerr, he, he doesn't have the benefit of the doubt of a championship, and in fact many have listed him as being on the hot seat at least before Detroit got off to a great start to the season. So uh, let's just talk at first about the NBA's role in, in this world of protest, because in some ways this felt a little bit like choir preaching, this is sort of the target audience of the NBA is a lot more receptive to these kind of ideas than, than say, the NFL's audience, but also, uh, like I said, it it is going out on a limb for a coach like Van Gundy, of of all coaches. I mean, so the NBA has been uh, at the front of
2: this uh, going back even before uh, Colin Kaepernick. Uh, They wore hoodies. uh, Right, Trayvon Martin. For Trayvon Martin. They wore I Can't Breathe t-shirts for Eric Gardner. They uh, protested Donald Sterling. So this isn't a new thing in the NBA, even like the recent NBA, but it hasn't reach the same kind of like boiling point that it has in the NFL because the audience is just different the the climate is just different it's a different league it's a it's just a different audience it's a different like it's a more diverse audience it's it has more black fans has more minority fans it has younger fans it has uh, just a very different makeup than the NFL and other sports have.
0: Yeah, when we did some research about the political leanings of different fan bases, I think this was around the start of the, um, the flap with Trump and, and the NFL protest, we found that of all the major sports leagues in America, NBA fandom in a given media market was easily the most negatively correlated with Trump's vote share within that market. So there, there's data to back up this idea that the NBA is by far the most liberal leaning of all the fan bases in, in the major sports.
1: The, the thing is here, he is absolutely speaking to his audience to some extent. He coaches a team that, at least by name, is in the city of Detroit, a city that's 80% black. But they weren't playing in Detroit, which is what I find most interesting about all this. They, they just moved to the city, moved back to the city, have struggled with attendance almost more than anybody. And so he was playing in a state that obviously went for Trump. And if you remember, you know, first of all, I think he deserves a lot more credit than he gets for kind of speaking out about this stuff, because he didn't just write this piece. He actually, when I first started this job, I came on the week of the election. I joined 538 the week of the election. Stan Van Gundy watched his team come out, and he basically said that they were really flat on a bus ride the day after a game. And he started asking some of his players, like, is there something I should know about? Is there something, is it just the way we lost the the last game? is there something else going on and they all were just really upset about the way the election played out and wondering what it would mean for them what it, what it would mean for society and he came out and just a, a tirade basically saying our country should be ashamed and this was right after the election this is when emotions were high this was after the state of michigan had voted for donald trump and he basically said i i have to watch my players you know i i have the benefit of not having to really worry about how This impacts me as a black, as a white man, but I coach a team full of black players that basically watch the country vote for someone that is saying the things that he's saying about their group of people and about women and the way that he's done this. And so I respect so much of what he did there because I I don't see him as someone that has the same sort of job safety as a Popovich, as a Kerr. And I, I think it is powerful to have white men step up to basically say this. I, you know, I guess there aren't any star white male players really there aren't many of them in the NBA but you know the next closest thing to that is to have white people that have something to lose to actually step up and kind of the position that Kaepernick put himself in as a black man with something to lose having Stan Van Gundy do that I think is is very meaningful I I
2: think at the same time though it's also meaningful that only the the white head coaches not only like Fitzdale's been speaking up but like White coaches have kind of a, a buffer there where like they get a little more benefit of the doubt that like th- that isn't a black person challenging uh, like a white audience on their ideas on these things like white people can speak more freely with a little more uh, just cushion than like minorities can.
0: Right. And, and we're in a time where maybe there are fewer black head coaches than there have been uh, at various other times in the league's history. So, you know, maybe that does also amplify the sense of risk that if you are a black coach and you come out and, and make the kind of statements that we've seen out of Popovich and, and now out of Stan Van Gundy, that just, you know, increases the, the microscope that you've put yourself under in a job that doesn't traditionally lend itself toward job security anyway.
1: Yeah, I, I think, too the biggest names and faces in this sport are obviously black and they are of the players. And so to some extent, what is a black coach going to say that is somehow going to get more attention than LeBron calling the president a bum? So, I I mean, I don't think there is anything like that. And so I do think it's powerful to have white male figures step up and say something and to, to criticize the way they have. I think that that is probably the the biggest white face you have in this sport. You don't really, again, you don't really have anybody like a Tom Brady or something like that who's white in the NBA.
0: And uh, the other interesting thing is that you know for the NBA's reputation, which uh, ha- all of this has kind of come into, for it being such a progressive league that. You know, people have held up the TV ratings that are flagging for the NFL as being related to the protests and related to the politics that have, uh, you know, been front and center in. The coverage of the games. And yet, the NBA is off to a great start. There was a, a tweet that, uh, according to Richard Deitch and Austin Karp, that NBA game viewership this season is up 15% over last year uh, on cable networks. And so it is kind of maybe it does also speaks to what we talked about with the audiences being different, but. There's even evidence in the NFL that the ratings drop was never about the protests, that NFL ratings were down more in states that, that voted for Hillary Clinton than ones that voted for Trump. So, you know, I, I don't think it needed that much uh, evidence to show that this idea that, you know, the people weren't watching the NFL because of the protests is mostly BS. But this is kind of further uh, evidence of that, that the NBA hasn't seemed to suffer and in fact is actually thriving in the ratings uh, despite all of the political activity of the players and coaches. I think this is important to the risk calculation that goes
2: into uh, the credit that the league gets. The league as a structure, the league as a group of billionaires who, you know, own these franchises get for being very progressive compared to the NFL, that uh, they have, you know, more progressive uh, executives and, you know, all the way down. And, I mean, that's as it's as it's happening. Yes, that's that's as it appears. It's like clearly the NF- NBA is a more progressive league. But it's also a different set of circumstances. Like these are people who uh, – are seeing ratings go up that don't think they have the same business concerns that the NFL owners do. I mean, Mark Cuban's out here, you know, uh, depending on who you're listening to, either texting with Steve Bannon or talking about, you know, running uh, <laughs> like a campaign with him. And like, this is a group that is responding to its circumstance. Um, and its circumstances are just different than that at the NFL.
1: I felt for a while, the NBA probably gets a little bit too much credit for how progressive it is. I think really, and maybe this is harsh, I kind of feel like the NBA hasn't been hit with the real big bombshell issue yet. I remember shortly after the Ray Rice thing happened, was it Jeff Taylor from the Hornets had a domestic violence issue come up and the league just sat him out for 15 games as they figured out what sort of real punishment they wanted to levy there. And I kept thinking, what if this was someone of an all-star stature in the NBA? I feel like the the first thing that happened in Adam Silver's time as commissioner was really the situation where he had to make a decision on what was going to happen with the Clippers ownership and the racist remarks that were made there that were recorded but he handled that swiftly and since then I kind of feel like the league has been kind of lukewarm on a lot of issues you think about the kneeling issue the league has basically said we really don't want you guys to kneel we really would frown upon that and these guys lock arms And I actually think locking arms Is is probably the weakest stance You could take towards something like that Because I don't really know what it says Other than, it's almost like a More of an all lives matter message Than anything else to me So I, I kind of feel like the league has In some ways, yes, it's clearly more progressive You see Adam Silver making the decision to march In gay pride parades and stuff like that Which is very cool But I also feel like the league Hasn't really found its true test yet Of where its moral compass is compared to some of these other leagues that the the fan base is a lot different. I feel like they've been down the middle on most of the stuff and that we haven't really watched them have to take a stance just yet.
2: Right. It's the thing where like LeBron and Dwayne Wade and Chris Paul get up and say that like we need to do something about this stuff, but in a way that doesn't offend anyone and that's seen as, you know, roundly applauded and like that's what the NFL people are talking about. Well, Colin Kaepernick and um you know all these players are going about it the wrong way. But if you're not offending anyone with your protests, what really are you accomplishing? Like,
0: Right, the point of a protest is not to make us feel comfortable. Okay, let's leave things there for now. I know that this is going to be a topic that we pay attention to throughout the rest of the season, but let's pivot to the Boston Celtics and their great run right now. When prize-free agent Gordon Hayward went down on opening night, many of us assumed that it would make things even more difficult for a Boston Celtics team that already seemed a little bit overhyped going into the year. Let's listen to what one of us may have said on this very podcast right after Hayward's injury. Seeing a star go down that quickly was a devastating start to the season just for the league as a whole, and it also put a big hole in the middle of one of the league's up-and-coming teams, and it's going to have a big impact on the rest of the season. So first off, I have to ask the question, how does this affect the Boston Celtics' projection? We talked about their projections you know, ad nauseum going into the season and whether or not they could pass the Cavs, and it feels like in just a few minutes— some of that, or most of that, is kind of moot now. Wow, that guy was wrong. In case you can tell, that was me talking. Uh, so, although the Celtics lost that night, that was just about the only time they dropped a game all season. And after beating the Nets in Brooklyn on Tuesday, Boston is first in the East, and they've won 13 games in a row. Guys, the Celtics, how have they been able to do this? I mean, so I wrote at the time that uh, they were really going to need something out of Jalen Brown,
2: um, or at least someone. And it turns out that they got a lot out of Jalen Brown. They've gotten a lot out of Jason Tatum. And Al Horford has, I mean, the more I watch this team, I think like he's probably the most important player, even though like Kyrie's out there you know, doing all kinds of Kyrie stuff. Uh, so, yeah, they're just getting it from everywhere.
1: Yeah, this is a team that when you watch them play, I could actually imagine them not getting that much better offensively. They've got a huge gaping hole in their offense that should be Gordon Hayward. And so it makes sense that they're, not a top 10 team offensively. But I could see them being really lethal if they make the playoffs, especially if they're seeded really high because of the fact that you look at a situation where Kyrie Irving could just go supernova and that a playoff setting is actually probably more his pace and the idea that he can go one-on-one more without worrying about if it goes against the confines of what Brad Stevens wants to do. So the fact that they're leading the league in defense, I think it's a scary sign because – Offensively, they have enough talent to where they could put together a pretty nasty playoff run. They've been way more impressive than any of us expected at this point.
0: Yeah, I think that might be the biggest surprising thing is that in terms of offensive efficiency, they're actually kind of mediocre despite this great run that they've been on. They're 19th in the league, but like you mentioned, Chris, they're by far number one in defense, lowest effective field goal percentage allowed. They're allowing the lowest quality shots in the league, according to Second Spectrum's quantified shot quality, Uh, and they're even rebounding uh, on defense, which is a thing that they haven't really done that much under Brad Stevens, their fourth in defensive rebound rate. And so, would you want to build a team like this where you know that the defense is there, maybe the offense comes and goes, but you have someone like Kyrie Irving, like you mentioned, that can kind of take over. He has one of the highest fourth quarter usage rates in the league this year so far. Uh, And and you kind of build that team where it's almost like a 2001 Sixers on steroids in some ways, where it's like defense is the core of the team, but you have players who can emerge on offense and, and, uh, you know, take over when need be. So, Defense is something that we were pretty uh, lukewarm
2: on this team coming in. That's
0: true. They they lost
2: Xavier Bradley. Uh, they lost they got Kyrie Irving. They got Kyrie, but they also lost Isaiah, which is you know uh, probably a net gain. Maybe as, comes as out in the wash, yeah. But it turns out like the defense is number one in the league. And if you really drill down into what they're excelling at, uh, so again from Second Spectrum, uh, they are number one in the league in. Uh, off ball screen defense, which is uh, one of the most important things like in the league right now. They've given up 78 points per 100 chances off of off ball screens, which is um, for anyone, like 78 points per 100 possessions is like ridiculous. And they don't have to cover up for Isaiah quite as much, um, like with the way that they would last year. So Marcus Smart can switch all over the f- court. Uh, Jason Tatum is like a rookie, but he can switch and like he's a big body, he can stay in front of guys more or less and al, al horford is- can show out and you know you know drop when he has to and like this has made them a like the best, the best defense in the league,
0: sure. and I mean, Kyrie deserves a lot of credit. I think for playing a lot better, uh, certainly a lot more effort on defense. I think no matter which defensive metric that you look at, he's having not just the best year of his career, but the only positive season of his career relative to average. Like if you look at some of the plus-minus metrics and and some of the shot defense metrics. So he, uh, I don't know if this is Brad Stevens also deserves some credit for for scheming up something that that's allowed him to shine. But uh, I think Kyrie, uh, in the past, it was only about offense for him, but he's actually turned himself into a pretty good, uh, at least passable defender in the early going so far.
1: In, in some ways, you look at what this team was able to do in the playoffs last year, even against Cleveland. Do you remember Isaiah Thomas went down and everyone literally just turned out the lights on, on Boston saying that they were out of it? And they were, essentially, but you remember Cleveland struggled to score a little bit after that after that happened because all of a sudden like Kyle said you replace Isaiah Thomas with guys that can defend Terry Rozier is not a bad defender Marcus Smart is a really good defender and then everybody else on that team is basically a body that everybody basically falls within about six four six three six four to about six eight six nine Jay Crowder being another example of that Avery Bradley being a really good example of that and so they this is kind of a continuation of that to some extent. Everybody can make a play. No one's a liability. The guy we thought that would be a liability and Kyrie Irving, I mean, you can look at it on the court and see it. The effort there is just incredible compared to what we've seen in past years. And you have to think that some of it is him saying, look, I want to be my own man. I want my own team. I want to see what I can do. I want the sort of respect that I'm due. A big chunk of that, a big part of that is playing both sides of the floor and setting an example and showing that you're not just going to go out and score, but that if you're going to be the leader of this team, that you take responsibility for what happens on the other side of the ball. And Kyrie deserves a ton of credit for that because we all basically wrote him off and figured that it would be about the same with Isaiah Thomas as it was with Kyrie Irving.
2: It is also uh, just the pairing thing where Kyrie's never played next to a guy like Marcus Smart. And like so one of my friends, uh, Jay Kang, like has this thing he says about uh, Smart where he's just point guard Ben Wallace. He He's not good at, like, a lot of <laughs> basketball skills, but, like, he just ruins plays and, like, makes it impossible to play defense. Like, he's basically a middle linebacker just, like, bumping the slot receiver as he comes across, like, on those off-ball screens. And it just it throws off the rhythm of the entire play when, like, Marcus is out there just kind of giving you, like, that one extra bump, like, just getting in the way of things. And, like, that's a dude who Kyrie hasn't really played next to, and it's, it's easier to play defense when, like, there's a guy gumming up the play like that.
0: And even on offense, they've managed to sort of survive his shaky shooting and still been pretty efficient with him on the floor. Uh, And so maybe it's just the fit of this team also. But I wanted to ask you guys, if you did have to pick one person or player uh, who is most responsible for this run. Who would you pick so far? I, I might pick Horford because of the what he brings at both ends of the floor. The ESPN just rolled out their real plus-minus ratings for 2018, brand new, uh, and it had Horford as the fifth best player in the league so far, and uh, I believe his impact was plus two points per 100 possessions over average. On both offense and defense, he might be the only player in the league who can say that. So I think uh, in the early going, this new Celtics team has really brought out all of the things that made him already really good with the Atlanta Hawks uh, and and maybe didn't show up as much uh, on the Celtics uh, right after he got there last year, but have really flourished this season. Every metric that you drill down on,
2: like with the Celtics, Horford is at the center of, of where they're effective. If Horford is setting a screen for you and you get the ball right after that screen and you take a shot— uh, you are much more efficient than if you hadn't. If Horford is setting a screen for you and you pass to Horford, you are much <laughs> more efficient than like passing to us, like twice as efficient as passing to Baines. Like uh, every, like literally every way that we can observe efficiency on the court as it involves like multiple players at a time, Horford is like at the locus of that.
1: And if we're going to keep it completely honest here, Horford is probably the guy from a, a spacing standpoint that sets him apart from someone like Baines or other big men across the league. And he's someone that is unselfish, sometimes painfully so, but is unselfish enough to where he keeps the ball moving in a Brad Stevens offense. Whereas based on what we've seen with Kyrie, even this season, when he wants to take over a game, the ball stops a little bit. Um, I think you take that and you kind of take those lumps as you need to to take the offense that he's going to give you and the one-on-one offense he provides. But he fits the offensive style that they want to play a lot more And quite frankly, like Kyle said, the screens that he's able to set for Kyrie to duck underneath and to make the moves he wants to make, you still need Al Horford to do that. He's been the biggest difference maker this year. He's been one of the best players in the league by far.
0: Okay, so having said all that, we have to ask, how long can this last? Can they keep this up? Obviously, they're not going to win every game. But what do we think is the future for this team down the rest of the regular season, but then also in the playoffs, considering how shaky Cleveland has looked, but how we talked about last week, they... You know, you can't write them off. Uh, you can never write off a LeBron James team uh, until someone can prove that they beat them in the playoffs. What's what's the future for this team? Does it depend on the defense staying as great as it's been, uh, or or you know the luck continuing in some of these close games? They've had to dig out of a, you know a handful of really deep holes. They've also uh, you know needed to win a, a few toss up type of games. Uh, what, what's the what's the ceiling for this team? So I don't think this run is
2: reflective of like who they actually are. They're not going to they're not a Warriors level team just mm-hmm. yet. But the near so the the distant future is obviously very bright. They're babies and they're playing like this except for Horford who like we'll talk about. But as far as this season goes, it really depends on how much they develop within the season cuz you can kind of see the lights flickering on. So l- last night against the Nets, for example, uh Jalen Brown, like, to this point in the season, is a disastrous driver. He's just, like, the play doesn't go well when he drives to the rim and, you know, tries to make something happen. But you watch him, and uh, I think he had a pretty good game going to the rim last night, and... It's just like oh so if he gets this to to start working this is a very different team because right now the offense just doesn't work when Kyrie's not running pick and roll with like with Horford and like whatever they can run the Brad Stevens kind of Butler ball but like it doesn't really work every every possession is kind of a slog and they're relying on guys who maybe aren't as good of spot up shooters as they've been so far this year to make their shots it just looks like a struggle but if. Uh All of a sudden, Jalen can you know just be a guy who handles the ball and like distributes you know on the drive and kick that's a very different team. If Tatum can you know kind of do the same that's a very different team. So these players who are like very young and can conceivably develop those skills throughout the season. Uh, if that starts happening, then yeah, like they are a threat to take the the conference.
0: Yeah, and like you mentioned, Kyle, those two, particularly Brown and Tatum, have been so much better than anyone expected them to be going into the season. And you wrote about how that was going to be a crucial part of any kind of Celtics development and long term success. That I think that they deserve high grades for you know passing expectations in the early run of the season.
1: Yeah, that that's. Easily the biggest question here, normally the sort of development that Kyle's talking about, you normally watch that take place over an offseason, and so I don't know that they get there this year, but that said, none of us expected them to do what they're doing right now. I think it's become a little bit easier for them because they're so good defensively that, like you said, it, it, it gives you more leeway to not have to be great offensively, but when stuff gets tougher and when guys start to really trap Kyrie in a pick and roll, can they still hit an open shot? Can they make a play off the dribble? If people force Tatum to put the ball down on the floor, or more so Brown because of his struggles at the rim and finishing at the rim. He did look great against Brooklyn last night, by the way, on some of those plays. But if, if they force him to do that in a playoff series, the same way that teams make Danny Green do that in the finals, for instance, how does that change their offense and where do they go once a team counters with that? So I think those are questions that you're probably going to figure out more so over the next couple of years than this season but they've surpassed my expectations already at this point.
2: A big thing with this team is just the fit with Kyrie and especially Horford where uh, the Kyrie things like Chris mentioned earlier where Kyrie will just take over possession you decide he's going to have a Kyrie possession and like that's just the end of it. Uh, Horford is a much more as much smarter spatial player than Kyrie's ever played with and running a pick and roll in a Brad Stevens system is very very different than on a LeBron James Cavs team where it's just like a grinding kind of grueling thing even with a player like Kevin Love but well the Kevin Love uh, Kyrie Irving pick and roll was actually more successful than the LeBron Kevin Love one was. Because like Kyrie is a guy who's just gonna find his own space, and Kevin Love can just run to whatever space is there instead of like where he's supposed to be, and Horford does that all the time. Jalen Brown is doing that all the time this season, so Jalen's off-ball numbers on his scoring are like through the roof this season. And you wouldn't make that connection right away where oh Kyrie gonna you know make guys better like off the ball, but like that's what's happening because Kyrie just draws so much attention. They do this funny thing sometimes. I'm not sure if it's deliberate where. It's kind of like in the offensive version of, like, the Tibbs defense where on the strong side there will be three off-ball guys uh, for the Celtics and Kyrie has the ball on this side. And he'll just decide to run a and pick-and-roll and just dribble right into the other three defenders and just instinct takes over where, like, all four guys are all of a sudden looking at Kyrie and everyone just sprints to open space and they get an open shot out of that. It And, like, only really Kyrie can do that because, like, no one really dribbles and, like, has a handle like Kyrie. But it's this thing where, like, the Celtics are making it work with what they got with Kyrie, and it's just it's just fun to watch.
0: All right, let's leave the Celtics there and wrap up the show. We always close the show with a segment that we like to call Small Sample. This is where we discuss an emerging trend that doesn't have a lot of data behind it yet, but might end up possibly being meaningful before season's end. And this week's Small Sample is brought by a listener uh, who, who reached out on Twitter named Tristan Z. Hare. I don't know if that's his real name. Uh, but he asked me about... Uh, The fact that there's so much parity in terms of wins and losses between the East and West in the NBA right now uh, that it's still a small sample, but that the teams uh, are almost matched perfectly in terms of the records at each ranking slot. Uh, And he's right about that. He's also right that the East is more than holding its own. Right now it has a 518 winning percentage in cross-conference games. Uh, the East, just for some context, has not been above 500 in a season since 2009. And that was the only other season since 2000 in which they were above 500. Last season, they had a 45% winning percentage in cross conference games. And we even talked about this before the season about how there was a massive talent exodus going from the East to the West. Chris, you and I found that 22 of the NBA's top 30 players, uh, last season were in the West, or, or were starting this season in the West. And that was before Gordon Hayward went down with an injury. He was one of the only notable ones that went from West to East. So, How has the East managed to stay not just competitive but come above water uh, so far this season?
1: I think really when you look at that, I'm a firm believer that the more talent you stack on one team, and in this case, like you said, it was mostly players going from the East to the West, the more talent you stack on a given team, the more they have to figure out as a result of it. And so I think in some ways it's kind of just – that these teams aren't used to playing alongside really, really talented teammates. Even though they're more talented than the East, the East is probably more continuity that they have as compared to the West. And so I think that's a big chunk of it. We've obviously seen a couple of teams that have been really surprising that we didn't expect. Out of the East, I think the Pistons being at the very top of that list, the Magic as well. And so that's, that all factors into it. The, the West has just not been that impressive so far, but it's not anything to really worry about, I don't think, as much as with the East. I think we, and the Celtics, we expect these teams to re- regress to the mean a little bit.
0: Yeah, to that continuity point, Chris. Uh, you know, obviously the Celtics turned their roster upside down, and it's worked out well for them. But uh, the other surprising East teams, like the Magic, the Sixers, the Pistons, the Raptors, even the ha- New York Knickerbockers. The, well, maybe the, the Knicks, Knicks. You know, they've changed things a little bit too over the off season. But those other teams ha- actually do have a lot of continuity and have kind of been building uh, this or keeping some degree of a core together across multiple years. Right. So, I mean, I mentioned the Knicks, but it's also the discontinuity
2: is that these are also franchises that have been just doormats for years. And so a lot of it is just like baked into the ELO. Like they've just been so depressed for so long. These franchises, we just expect them to be there forever because they've kind of been there forever. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, it's weird that the Knicks are at, what six seed right now. And that's crazy. Right. <laughs> and that five and nine is like a huge milestone for the Nets at this point in the season. So it's just been baked into, like, basically what the models expect from these teams because they've just been there for so long.
0: It's like small incremental steps toward bare minimum competence also juices that, that record for the East as much as anything.
1: How sad is it that the bare minimum competence is really exciting to watch, though? Kristaps uh, Porzingis and the Knicks, not even just KP either. Nilakina. Going chest to chest. I know we said we weren't going to talk about the Knicks at the top of the segment, but I mean, (laughs) this stuff is, it's fun to watch, to to watch them be competitive. It's fun to watch them blow a 23-point lead if it means they're competitive in a game that we wouldn't expect them to be competitive in. By the way, they already beat the Cavs earlier this year. They should have beaten them a second time. But just the idea that you've got teams that look like they could actually do this if they don't totally mess it up the way they always have in the past, the Sixers, the Knicks, You've got the Nets that actually look good, that looked good against the Celtics last night without D'Angelo Russell. It, it looks like you've got teams that are competent, and that does go a long way toward, even if the West has more stars, maybe the East has teams that are constructed better, that are just more balanced than the West does.
0: Yeah. Now, just to pump the brakes a little bit, because I have to be a wet blanket on, on this, the East is still being outscored by 0.3 points per game uh, in cross-conference games, despite the winning records. That's noise. And we've also seen the East start hot before. Uh, just a couple years ago, they had a 54% cross-conference winning percentage at basically this stage of the season. And they ended up just being terrible over the rest of the year and, and ended with a 48% uh, cross-conference winning percentage. So just, just a little bit of, of uh, you know, uh, reality check on this. But it is exciting to see. I mean, the other
2: thing is that we've been talking about how disappointing the West is, and mostly we're talking about the Thunder, I think, when we say that. But also, like, we expected, you know, big, exciting things at the Rockets, and, like, we haven't seen Chris Paul really on that team. Warriors are literally just screwing around for entire possessions but still getting wide-open shots right. out of it. Like, if you if you watch, like, Steph Curry, like, drives on, like, the, these systems that we have to just watch, like, specific plays, he'll literally dribble in circles for, like, six, seven, eight seconds and then just throw a no-look, like, one-hander, and it's just like that that's their offense for for large stretches of the game and the warriors are 11 and 3 the rockets are 11 and 4 the spurs who like we haven't even gotten into are 9 and 5 like
0: and like a disappointing 9 and 5 if there is such a
1: thing right
2: and so yeah, like they start turning it on later in the season Like this might be a
1: different talk And, and like you said about the Spurs, no Kawhi Leonard either I mean, so they're, they're going to be there uh, Whether or not it makes them way better It just makes them the normal Spurs that we're used to They're going to be there I, I feel like this is going to regress to the mean It's a small sample, like you said
0: Alright, that'll do it for this week's show Thanks guys, good to have you back, Chris uh, We missed you last week Our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin we receive production assistance from our intern, Daniel Levitt. You can email us at podcasts at com. We'd love to hear what you think. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we're there. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe at iTunes.com slash five thirty eight. You can also find us in the Listen tab of your ESPN app. Wherever you find us, be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. I'm Neil Payne. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.